And welcome back to the Learning Man Podcast. My name is Omar Cantu. I am your host. Now, typically, we like to go out and speak to other men that have stories to tell. Um, Today, we're going to have the very first woman on the show. And that's important because she used to be a man. She's going to talk to us about all kinds of things, especially what it was like growing up in a body that she did not feel was hers. You're not going to want to miss this one. This is The Learning Man. All right, now, welcome back, gentlemen. Welcome back, gentlemen, to The Learning Man. I'm your host, Omar Cantu, and I am super, super excited for today's guest. Um, Today um, is kind of a big day for the podcast. Um, You know, usually, um, initially, I uh, venture out into, you know, speaking to different, uh, you know, what I like to call strangers. And um, to kind of better understand um, and ask kind of like the taboo questions, right? The taboo questions that uh, we as men were kind of afraid to ask, you know, um, you know, our fathers and uh, kind of afraid to ask others because they may be considered taboo. Um, And usually what we do is we talk about, we talk to other men and we also talk to experts. Um... On today's podcast, um, today is kind of like a special episode because today we are talking not only to an expert, uh, not only to an activist in the space, um, but we are talking to the very first woman on the podcast. And that's a big deal. That is a big deal. Um, But as a segue, and uh, I hope I don't ruffle too many feathers out there, but uh, as a segue, we are also talking to a woman that used to be a man. So today we have, um, she is a titan in the aerospace industry. She is is a trans activist. Um, She works on so many different projects um, to impact um, the, um, you know, equality, just equality for all mankind as we venture out into the wilderness that is space. Cause eventually we are going to get there. We are going to inhabit that, uh, that great vast beyond. And, uh, she is the CEO of Galaxis Aerospace. She is uh, president of the multi-planetary society. She is the executive director of gaze in space and she is also involved with the Foundation for the Future. Uh, please welcome, direct from Wittlidge, Germany, Miss Inara Tabir. Hey, Omar. Doing great. So good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for making time for me. I know that we had to go back and forth quite a bit because of the, uh, the crazy uh, time zones, but uh, we made it happen. Yeah, that's always the fun part of, you know, working in one country and living in another, or a few anyway. But yeah, we got it. We, we made a stick. Yeah, for sure. So I'm super excited to have you on. Like, sincerely, genuinely, like you are a fantastic person. And uh, I'm so excited to talk to you today and, and kind of also kind of, um, you know, talk to uh, talk to the other gentlemen that are that, are, that might be listening to this podcast that uh, you know might have you know some questions about you know sexual identity, gender identity, um, things like that. So, um, you have 
kind of a phenomenal story. And uh, I wanted to kind of, uh, I definitely wanted to talk to you about it. In terms of, um, so I guess, you know, you, you know, you made the big change, right? You, uh, you made the big change and, uh, you know, I wanted to, you know, I know a lot of times myself, you know, growing up, I came from a really small town in South Texas, um, where I didn't really know a whole lot of, you know, I, I thought, I thought the whole world was Hispanic or of Mexican descent. Uh, I, I didn't know. I mean, my high school had like, you know, two black families and, you know, five white families and that was it. And, and, and culturally, you know, all of us, we're like, you know, they've been there for so long that they're pretty much Hispanic too. Right. They have the same accent that we do no matter what color their skin. Right. And so I didn't really know better. And, um, I, I wanted to kind of like ask you a few questions, get to understand your background better and, um, and kind of open up, uh, you know, trying to get some answers out into the world of, you know, if what it's like, you know, you know, living as, uh, living as a, as a living life kind of stuck in a place where you feel like you're, you're, you're in the wrong body. Yeah, and what it's it. like kind of make, making that, that transition into, into, into uh, making the, because it's a huge decision, right? It's a, it's a massive decision. And a lot of times you don't feel comfortable kind of like coming out and sharing that with the world. So I wanted to kind of better understand, you know, your mindset and what it was like kind of growing up. So I guess let's go ahead and start from the beginning. Um, I know that, you know, a little bit about, about your background, but um, just so the audience knows, um, you know, what, uh, what was your, what was your childhood like? Oh, that's a big question. Where to begin with that one? Yeah. So start you know, all the way back from the beginning. <laughs> I can definitely relate a little bit to what you're talking about as far as growing up in an area where everyone's basically the same. You know, I'm Mexican and Irish, but I grew up in foster care in Northern Arizona in a really small Mormon town. So it was like 99.999%, you know, Anglo Mormon kind of territory. And there were three Irish families and one, very small Catholic church full of Mexican families on the outskirts of town. And that was kind of it. So, you know, growing up in that setting, I never really felt like I, go I belonged because I wasn't Mormon. My family got stuck up there and then we ended up in foster care. So I was shuffled from home to home to home. I will say that, you know, having grown up in such, an, such a small kind of, you know, like 3,000 people, very um, not diverse. I ended up in a lot of very different kinds of foster homes. So, you know, like different religions, mm -hmm. Mormon and Catholic. There was one Baha'i foster mother, uh, Muslim, Buddhist, pagan. So I got a little bit more, I guess, a little bit more of the variety in the foster homes. They were pretty much all abusive, but um, I never really felt like I belonged there. And it took a very long time to figure out where I could belong in the world or that there w were even options outside of this kind of model of life. Up until my teenage years, I really thought like this was the world. You know, this is uh, the time period really before the internet was available. We didn't have cell phone coverage up in the mountains. So there was, there were no cell phones. And I remember us getting our very first like technological infusion was this gigantic satellite phone. You know, it weighed like 50 pounds and a phone call cost you a month's rent and it was for emergencies, but it was like the thing you go out into your car and you could call for a rescue chopper. But um, that was it. So we didn't really have access to the world and interlibrary loan was my real big like, oh, something really exists out there, you know? So 
once I realized there was more that was mind blowing and more possibilities opened up, but that was much later. Right. Okay. And so you said that, um, you said that you ended up, you, you know, you ended up into foster care. What, and, and you had some like abusive situations that happened within foster care. What, what happened there? Like, if you don't mind, mind sharing. Absolutely. So my parents were, you know, it's kind of the classical failure route. They were teenagers and they were drug addicts and they got pregnant and I was born. My mother was intending to abort me, but um, at the abortion clinic, an activist stopped her and and spoke to her and read her this poem and it broke her heart. And so she walked away from the abortion appointment and I lived. Um, But wow. Yeah. So that was pretty, a pretty good turn of luck there. But at four, my mother left. My father was really abusive. She was a child basically. And so she left when I was four years old and then I was shuffled from home to home. My father, you know, gave me away uh, in a drug deal. He was, he left me as collateral for an eight ball of Coke and never came back. And, um, I was, I ended up wow. tortured the whole night. This guy, you know, held me at knife point and told me how my blood would gurgle out as he slipped my throat. And, you know, that lasted all night long until one of the prostitutes there who knew my uncle called my uncle and said, Hey, come get this kid. And my uncle came and rescued me. My father didn't come back. And so I went through, you know, kind of like all the possibilities within my father's family. And they were pretty much the run of the mill, like drug crime kind of family without the glitz, like, you know, drug running, gun running, people running, prostitution, uh, petty theft, robbery, you name it. That was kind of the family business. So there were no real good options. And uh, one of the few stable places with, with my grandparents, my grandfather kind of created this, this situation with the family. He taught my uncle and his siblings how to steal cars. Like my uncle was nine years old, boosting cars and um, armed robbery. So he, he embedded all this kind of dysfunction into the family. And then in his later years, he turned around. <laughs> so, you know, the couple of years we lived with him when I was like five and six, seven, he was like basically decent. So I got a little bit of stability and then he died. So my father took us up to the White Mountains with this camp of con artists. They ran this thing called Fire on the Mountain Revival. And um, so we left Phoenix, Arizona and went up to the mountains to do this, this revival scam. And it was this one guy and a tr- basically he created his own trailer park with a bunch of ex-cons giving him their, you know, uh, their welfare money and he would give them donated food and then they would run these revival scams and rob people. So that was kind of our entrance into the White Mountains. And then my brother and I were begging for food door to door because my father was so strung out, he wouldn't feed us. And someone called CPS, they grabbed us and the cons moved on. So this little camp that we had been living in left and we were left behind in this tiny Mormon town and uh, didn't belong. And a lot of people remembered the damage these cons had done and blamed us for it for years. Like we basically were where they took the frustrations out on. And so we, that was our beginning. Yeah, exactly. We were, we were trash. We came from trash. We were as responsible as, as, as these cons had been, basically. It was like this idea of bad seed that we had come from. So that was the beginning. That was the entrance. Wow. Wow. And you said, and said you, 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 you were picked up by CPS. You, you went into foster care and then in foster care, you, you kind of bounced around. Right. And, and there was like abusive situations within foster care as well. Right. Absolutely. You know, I, the thing I try to make people understand about foster care is that it's a broken system from the very beginning. And what you're doing is you're taking kids out of, you know, if you look at my setup, if you look at, you know, the way I, I came up, 
My parents were teenagers. They were drug addicts. You know, all these things that we can look at and predict kind of where these kids are going to end up. It was bad. And I was already set on a track at birth to be in a bad situation unless something drastically came into my life and changed it. But then when you drop kids in foster care, we can look at the numbers and predict that children in long-term care are very likely to end up on the streets, in prison, prostituting, dead, decided, on drugs. And we know this, but we haven't changed the system. So it's very frustrating for me because, you know, when I was growing up in all this abuse, in my head, there was all these ways of trying to process that because I had gone from a very, very abusive situation, but it was in a sense, like it was, it was less abuse. It was all different kinds of abuse, but growing up before foster care, bad things were happening to us, but I could always attribute it to like outside actors, if you will. Like even the terrible things my father did in my mind, you know, it wasn't him. It was the drugs or it was the police or, you know, whatever was acting upon us. I was so blind to this idea that it could be your parents because your parents are heroes. Even this situation where he left me for drug collateral and my mind as a child, I couldn't process that whole big thing. It took years to really figure out what really had happened there. So in my mind, it was like this terrible thing had happened, but at least I'm home. In foster care, it's very different because now you're thrown into an environment where you're with strangers. You base, you've been kidnapped. It's a prisoner of war kind of situation. In my mind, it always was a kidnapping and then a continuation of that kidnapping from home to home to home. And the system is set up to basically fail. These foster parents very typically are just looking for a paycheck. And these, these stereotypes hold true so often. They, yeah. they don't do much with these kids at all. You're not given a loving home. You're not given stability. The number one thing a kid needs to have a successful life, in my opinion, is a stable start. So if you're being shifted from home to home to home, if you don't have any sense of, of love or connection with your home life, you can't graft yourself onto the world in a, an appropriate way. So even at its best, it's just a really terrible system. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so, so you, you, you successfully got out of the system. You successfully went on, you know, you, you graduated high school and stuff like that. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, so I was actually outed for being gay at age 16. Imagine this tiny Mormon town. The librarian found out, and her son was my friend. She told her son, told the rest of school. It got around how school. Did, and how, it, how, did, how did she find out? That is a very long story. How, how long do we have? <laughs> I mean, was it was it like the uh, the the books that you were you were checking out, or so it's all because of a misunderstanding over which library I was going to. We had two libraries in this tiny town. We had the public library, which is basically a woodshed with some books in it, and um, we had the school library. My foster father and I lived outside of town at the time, like forty miles out of town on forty acres of land, and so he drove me in every day. He was a therapist. He would go into work. He dropped me off at school, picked me up afterwards, and um, he was going to be late that day. So I said, okay, well, meet me at the library. Now, in my head, the library meant the public library. It was like my home away from home, my solace point. I love to read. So I went to the public library. In his head, that meant the school library. So um, he didn't find me when he came to get me at the library after his appointment and decided I had run away without really... And there's no cell phones, obviously. So he just drove home and left me there. He often did these kind of like teaching moments, if you will, So I was at the library and I figured, you know, it wasn't the first time he was late. So I just waited and I read books and did my thing and hours went by and then the library closed. And I thought, well, this is weird, but sit at the front steps and wait for him. You know, so I sat on the front steps all night waiting. 
about 10 o'clock at night, I finally was like, this is ridiculous, you know? Um, so I called the police and said, hey, my foster father never came and picked me up. You know, here's what's going on. So the cops came and I thought they were coming because I called them, but they came and picked me up and said they had been looking for me all night that I was a runaway and they arrested me. Now I'm what? Yeah, so he had called them, basically said I'd run away and left it at that, you know, figured it would work itself out. So here I am, I'm 16 years old and I pretty much, I 100% feel like I'm going to die by, by the time I'm 18. I don't think I'm going to make it because I'm not being taught anything. I'm not being given any resources. I don't have any family support and I'm trying to figure out what the hell adulthood looks like and how I'm going to play any part in this world. And really up until that point, I didn't have much of an idea of what the outside world looked like. I mean, we, we made a trip once in a while to Phoenix to pick up the big supplies, you know, buy the big bulk toilet paper or something once a year. But I didn't have a concept of how it fit into it. So I was terrified. I thought, I'm going to die. So I started and we did have a computer at school. So I got onto the um, library computer at school or the library computer at the public library. And I was, you know, the very early days of AOL chat, I was talking to these older guys because I wanted to be safe. I wanted someone to protect me and give me, you know, so I'm, I'm writing to these older guys and they're more than willing to oblige. And they're writing these pretty awful things to me. And um, it was kind of this desperation. So I had these printouts in my backpack. So when the cops picked me up for this runaway situation, they had me handcuffed to the table and they're reading, they're opening my backpack. And I told this guy, I said, you can't look in my backpack. And he said, I can do anything I can, I need to, to keep this town safe. And I'm like, wow. you know, to me, even at that age, I'm like, what in the, what is wrong with me that I'm some huge danger? And it wasn't the first time I'd been treated this way. Foster kids are often the scapegoats for anything going on in those small towns. You know, like anytime there was a, a crime that was committed that they thought might be some local kids, it was the foster kids they went to right away. So it wasn't the first time cops had harassed me or threatened me or, you know, a foster parent had threatened to throw me in juvenile hall if I didn't do what they said or, you know, so there was this idea constantly that the cops were the enemy. And um, so this cop was going through my backpack and he's reading these emails, these lurid emails from these older guys. And he, he asks me, he's like, are you a homosexual? He's reading them out loud and laughing with his partner as I'm sitting there handcuffed at the table. And he says, are you a homosexual? And he says it in a way that made me feel like he was asking me if I was some sort of slime mold. And I was just embarrassed and afraid. And that moment I was embarrassed and I was actually really ashamed of the fact that I had no options and that I was sending these emails in some sort of desperation to not be alone in the world. And then when he dug through them and read them and, and demeaned to me, it was just this compound situation. And, and yet another situation where an adult who I was taught was supposed to protect me made me extremely unsafe. So I said, no, I'm not. And he's like, don't lie. This stuff is obviously homosexual. And um, my, foster, my foster father comes eventually and picks me up. And the whole car ride home, he doesn't say a word. The cop had taken him out and spoken to him. So I know, you know, they had the conversation. Right. And um, he gave my foster father the backpack and my foster father had stuck it behind the seat, didn't give it to me. And the whole way home, he did not speak to me. He just stared ahead and didn't say a word. And when we got home, I was going to climb into bed and he walked behind me and I heard the click of a gun. And I turned around and he was pointing a gun at me and literally said to me, I just want you to know if you try anything, I have protection. I was never a violent kid. I never threatened anyone. I didn't get into fights. I wasn't someone who got into trouble. I was a good student. Wow. But suddenly I was this huge threat because of some emails. I was a threat to the town apparently because of them. I was a threat to my foster father. And it, I got, it chilled me to the core that another adult was threatening my life and I had done nothing to him. 
and that was my introduction to, you know, that was my outing. And then after that, three, three of the same day. Yeah, really. Three I mean, it was, three it was, adults, exactly. It was really, it was the cops. <laughs> then it was my foster father. And the thing that went really wrong was when the cop was questioning me, he said, where did you get these? And I said, I printed them off at the library. And once again, wrong library. He went to the school library and told the librarian I had been printing off gay pornography. And she was my, one of my best friend's mothers. So she told her kid, he told everyone else. And before you knew it, I was getting death threats from the students and their parents. And so for my own protection, quote unquote, they moved me out of my school into this school outside of town that was like 18 kids and a parole officer. It was like the, you know, the, the kids that had gotten arrested and had no ability to graduate. So they were kind of thrown into a corner and forgotten about. And school was like really my only place where I belonged. I, I excelled at school. I loved to do extra credit. I loved to please the teachers. It's a classic mm-hmm. foster kid move. You know, like if you're in an abusive home, these are the adults that you feel somewhat safe with. And I lost that. And I gave up. I really felt like that was the end. Like I had done everything I could and I couldn't go any further. And I just gave up at that point. So I, did, I didn't end up graduating. I, I was a National Honor Society. I did academic decathlon. And once they stuck me in that kind of like babysitting delinquent school, I just stopped caring. Right. Because you were no longer challenged. Well, I just didn't see any more possibility. And really, I felt like it was a, it was a complete disenfranchisement. And I had gone through so many of those, obviously. All the things that you think about that make you feel safe or connected to the world, they start at home. Mm-hmm. It starts with your family, with your parents, with examples. I was a ward of the court. You know, I was part of the system and it was broken. So this was just one more reminder that there was no place for me at the table, honestly. Right. So what was the, what was the point of investing in it if there was nothing for me to get out of it? Wow. That's incredible. So you, okay, so you, and that, that, that all happened when you were 16. Exactly. So, man, so close to, to graduating too, uh, or like to finishing, you know, and getting the hell out, you know? Yeah. Um, okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. So in terms of, so you were 16 and you were, you know, you, by then you had already figured out that you were gay. Yeah, yeah, um, 100%. Yeah, yeah. At what age did you kind of like, kind of feel different or feel like, you know, like, how, how did how did you figure that out? Yeah, so I've, I've heard a lot of trans people talk about <clears throat> the moment they realized they were trans. And I never really had that moment. For me, it was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I never understood the difference between boys and girls in the sense of like genitals or... Um, expectations or any of that. Like for me, you know, that little bit of time I spent with my grandparents, I guess it was actually like age five to age eight. So there's three years. Um, I always assumed my brother would grow up to be like my grandfather and I would grow up to be like my grandmother. You know, I, to me, it didn't make it, there was no conflict in this idea that, um, that uh, what they called the little boy could grow up to be a woman. Like to me, that just made sense. Like my brother would be like my grandfather. I'd be like my grandmother. So I just understood that I would grow up to be a woman. I didn't think there was some other alternative or some other possibility. And I was seven years old and I was brushing my hair in front of the mirror. And my grandfather caught me and he said, what the hell are you doing? I said, I'm brushing my hair. And he said, there's only two kinds of people in the world that brush their hair in front of a mirror, girls and queers like Dan Quayle. I had no idea who the hell Dan Quayle was. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I had no, no idea who the hell Dan Quayle was. But... I realized in that one moment, oh my God, 
You mean I'm not going to grow up like grandmother? You know, I'm not, this isn't the path in life. And in that one moment, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I remember going into my room and just crying and feeling so betrayed. It was really probably even all the things I had endured up until that point, you know, in the drug houses, my father had basically not raised us in. This was the moment of deep betrayal where I felt like the entire world had utterly betrayed me and I felt trapped. From that point on, I felt imprisoned. This body didn't make any sense. It wasn't It wasn't going to take me where I thought I was going to go. Seven, at seven years old. At seven. Essentially. And I realized the world wasn't going to see me the way I saw myself. And so from that point on, that was really my first prisoner of war kind of moment where I felt the world had me locked in. And I would do little things. I, I would play with dolls when no one was looking. I would try to um, wear girls' clothes when no one was looking. And that was consistent from that age on. I would find anything I could. And I, I remember this couple, this little old couple, they were making these presents for the neighborhood kids. And um, the, mm -hmm. the father, the grandfather was carving these little trundle beds out of wood. And the grandmother was crocheting like little things for dolls to wear. And so they were giving these little gift sets out to all the girls in the neighborhood, like little trundle beds with dolls. And I wanted one so badly. So, and they gave me one, which was amazing. And my father found out and he came, he marched me back to this people's house. And he's like, what the hell do you think you're doing? Giving my son a doll to play with. He is no queer. And, you know, he gave it back to them. And I snuck and I was devastated. I, I love this doll and this trundle bed. It was like the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And um, I went back and I, I tried to, you know, get them to give it to me and they wouldn't do it. The, the, the woman wanted to, she's like, oh, just give him the doll. You know, his father's, you know, his father doesn't understand and, and he was like, no, that's his kid. We have to respect it. You know, we have to respect his wishes. And so I didn't end right. up getting them. But it was like, those were the kind of moments. And he, you know, when I'm living with my grandparents, he would come in once in a while, like every few months or something for a minute in my life. It wasn't like he was deeply involved in my life. But in that moment where he happened to show up, he took something that was really important to me. And um, that was a theme that played out through my entire life with this idea that you're not this, you're that. So you have to do these things instead. And I never really had an idea, like oftentimes when you look at the way that trans people talk about experience, it can look like this stereotyping of gender and sex of like women play with dolls and boys play with trucks. And, but it wasn't really that it was, it wasn't that I had decided like, this is a girl thing. That's a boy thing. It was that I wanted to do what the girls were doing. I wanted to follow them and do what they were doing. I wanted to be like my mother or my grandmother. I wanted to follow their path. So if my mother had been a mechanic, that would have been what I would have done. Like I wanted to fit in with them. I wanted desperately to be in that world. And so for me, I grew up with the girls that play with dolls and um, the world didn't have a place for me in that. And I think a lot of boys go through this too. There's a, plenty of boys out there that want to play with the dolls and want to play with the girls and they're going to grow up to be men and they're fine and they're well adjusted. It's just, um, those are those overlaps that can be hard to differentiate so that, you know, when you're looking at parents who see their boys playing with dolls and like, is this a trans child? Um, mm -hmm. not necessarily. Right. Right. I mean, I, I, I remember playing with dolls and I mean, that was, you know, um, and, and, but, but primarily because my grandmother was a seamstress and she used to make the dolls. Oh, that's awesome. And so I just thought that was like, so I thought that was really kind of cool that she would, she would make, you know, she was very artistic and things like that. And so I just thought it was really interesting. And, uh, and so. Yeah, I mean, she she used to make dolls for me. You know what I mean? Like, um, so that's really interesting. So, so I guess at some point you kind of interpreted feeling different with being 
with, with being gay, right? And then eventually you kind of like figured out, oh, I'm actually supposed to be this. Well, not so much. It wasn't, like, it wasn't like in really. Terms of internalizing it. It wasn't so much analytical. You know, I can remember the first boy I dreamed about, and that was uh, a kid named Joey in my fourth grade class. And I woke up, you know, I dreamed I had kissed him. And I, I woke up terrified. Um, you know, my sexuality manifested itself. You know, there's, there's different levels of acceptability to how we interact with our sexuality, depending on what age we're at. So when you're a little child, it's like, I'm going to marry so-and-so when I grow up. And then maybe as you get older, it's like, I would love to kiss that person. And then you, as you become an adult, then you start getting into like the more, you know, sexuality kind of base points. But for me, it was just whenever I was with boys, I felt very, um, I felt tingly, I guess. I felt um, caught off guard, very shy around them. When I was around girls, there was no issue. We just, we played hopscotch. We talked, like there was nothing that felt, right. there was no attraction, I guess. I can look at it back now and, and that, say that it. That was at a very young age. Oh yeah, I was in fourth grade, however mm -hmm. old fourth graders are. Um, but I remember dreaming that I kissed Joey and I was terrified. I didn't know what it meant. I'm like, what is going on? Because I realized at this point, you know, I'm in this body that has to do these things and has these expectations leveled against right. it. And that's not one of the things you're allowed to do, you know? So I already had this kind of pumped into me in this small Mormon town. And so I thought everyone would know that somehow this dream I had 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 like marked mm -hmm. my soul and people around me would see that I was broken or dangerous or whatever. So when I went into class, I just remember thinking, what if he finds out? Oh my God. And being terrified. It's very illogical mm -hmm. as an adult, but as a child, it was like, what if they find out, you know, that I'm this thing, this right. creature. That's really interesting. So at what, at what point did you kind of like start figuring out that you, you, like you were meant, like you were meant to be a woman and started making, made the decision to eventually kind of like transition? I mean, I prayed to God every night of my life, basically, to either take this away or make me a woman, you know, to change my body or to change my mind somehow. Because, and this is the incongruence that's unbearable. You know, I think I would have been fine with either fixing one or the other, just lining things up because it was agony. It was absolute agony. And um, so that was the first inkling of like, this could change. Is like, basically, God, please fix this, you know. And um, I lost that that understanding of God, at, you know, pretty pretty early age. Like I would say, 15, 14, 15, I no longer could believe in God. I was always the kid that, you know, if we were in Sunday school, I wanted to talk about Revelation. Other kids wanted to like mm -hmm. draw pictures and talk about Noah. I wanted to dig into Revelation. You know, I wanted to be in the seminary. I wanted to, you know, I, I read the hard stuff and I dug into it. So when I would ask questions, I would get shot down, you know, and when I would point out mm -hmm. discrepancies or hypocrisies, I'd be called a troublemaker. And so when I realized there was no room for questions, that's when I kind of left. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I disengaged from the religious life. I had to be there, but I wasn't there. And then it didn't take long for me to kind of let go of this idea of God as well. But so, you know, I could no longer really pray to God to take it away. But some part of me knew there had to be some way to figure this out. And so, like, you know, I was probably mm -hmm. 15, 16. I went to this little thrift store run by nuns, and they were selling clothes. And I, I found this brown leather skirt. And I bought it and they were very like, why do you want this skirt? You know, is this for someone else? And I'm like, oh no, we're doing this project in school. We're going to make book covers and I want to use the material. And so they're like, oh, okay, great. Here you go. And I put it on under my clothes and um, wore it to school. And I remember feeling the sense of peace where normally I would feel just like agitated or like something was wrong with the world on a kind of fundamental sense. 
just thinking about that skirt, I, ca- I got calm. I felt like there was a piece of me they couldn't take from me that they didn't even know about and I could have that. And mm-hmm. so that, that made me feel extremely calm and it kind of lowered my baseline, I guess. And so that was kind of the first sense of freedom I got in a big way was being able to wear that skirt and no one could really take it from me because they didn't know I had it and I would mm-hmm. sleep with it under my pillow and, you know. But that led to, you know, more cross-dressing and more trying to figure out other ways of being me. And those, of course, obviously led mm-hmm. later to transition in a bigger way. Interesting. So you're saying you never made those book covers? <laughs> no, sadly, the book cover didn't get made. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. Okay, cool. And so eventually, you eventually kind of like moved on and you ended up joining the Air Force. I you were you were in you were in the Air Force um, during our pre-interview. You mentioned that you followed a boy into I the Air did. Force. <laughs> Dumbest decision ever. Yeah. 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 Boys is always a bad decision. It's a t- it was a terrible decision. He was a pilot. So, yeah, you know, I, I aged out at 18. My 18th birthday, they gave me a trash bag full of clothes and they set me on the sidewalk outside of CPS and they said, it's your, you know, it's your life. Go do it. Like, we have no responsibility for you now. And it was terrifying. And so I didn't have any options. I didn't have any access to family. And I was, you know, in the middle of nowhere, the White Mountains, St. John's, Arizona, you know, it's just, there's nothing there. And there, there are no jobs. So I didn't have a driver's license, didn't have an education, didn't have any money. Um, so I had a lot of hard decisions. I was able to eventually track down, like I stayed with some friends for a while, um, slept in a lot of strange situations. I tracked down an, an aunt eventually. And so I was sleeping on her couch for a bit. But uh, the Air Force was like a way out. So I was, quote unquote, dating this boy. I thought we were so in love. <laughs> Dino, I won't say his last name, but... Uh, we met online. He was a pilot and he was so smart and so like, well, I guess, what's the word really? Like he had had a really great life, stable life, two parents, huge family. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was from Macau and it was like everything I wanted to have in my life. So I felt so undeserving and I wanted to impress him. So I went out and joined the Air Force. So I call him up after I get you know, to basic and I'm able to make my first phone call and tell him. And he's like, yeah, we're done. <laughs> so here I am stuck in the air force and he breaks up with me because I went into the air force and I thought I would have been pressing him. But when I went to the recruiter, wow, I found out later that this guy got a bonus off me. He was like, you should be a crew chief. When a recruiter tells you, you should do something, get a second opinion. I had never done any sort of mechanical work. I was the opposite. I was like this slinky, twinky, gay kid with no mechanical aptitude whatsoever. And I, I was like, I've never mm-hmm. even held a tool. And he's like, oh no, it's perfect. The Air Force likes it that way. They, you know, he was really selling it thick. He's like, they prefer you to know nothing so they can start you from scratch and teach you their way. And he just, you know, he really sold this thing to me. So I get in. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I, I get down to these, you know, F-16 flight lines. And this is not the place for someone like me. It was not a great experience, honestly. Wow. And how, how long are you in the Air Force? I don't remember how long I was in. So I did basic and I did like most of my tech school and then I got out and it was because of abuse on the flight line. There was a, a civilian, this like GS-12, I think he was, he was being really abusive and uh, didn't want, did not want me on his flight line. You know, he did not want this little faggot on his flight line. So he would say things like I was late when I wasn't. I didn't shine my boots when I had. I'd failed tests when I didn't. And I kept receipts. So I, you know, I had witnesses around. I kept copies of my tests. And so there was enough to show 
our commander that he was doing this nonsense. And so she called him and reamed him a couple different times. And um, like by the third time, she said, you know, look, it's wrong what he's doing, but this is how the flight line works. She said, it, it can, you know, you can stay in and you can fight this, but this is tech school. Once you get out on the flight line, it's going to be a lot harder to fight anything like this. And you're going right. to deal with people like right. him that are in charge. And so she gave me an option. She's like, you can get out honorably. I will, you know, I'll make sure you get out honorably. We'll give you a ticket home, you know, or you can stay and try and live this life. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm out. So I got out, but I made a lot of good friends and that ended up leading me to a lifelong relationship with the military. And I've always pretty much been around them since then. Right. That's super interesting. So, okay. So, so you're out of the military and, and from there, how did you kind of like, and then it was, it was, you went back and worked with the military, right? Um, on base, uh, kind of like stayed in that kind of world. Yeah. Um, and then eventually kind of like, it was during that period working, uh, you know, working as a civilian, working for the military that you decided to go ahead and make the move, right? And make the transition. Exactly. And how was that, what was that kind of, you know, what was going on during that period? Like, what, like, how did you make the decision to kind of want to make, cause that's a huge decision. I, Absolutely. Well, I mean, I guess ba basically based off your background, I think it was a pretty easy decision. It was almost kind of like an answer, right? It was like, um, it was more it was like, it's, it's, it's kind of like, it, you know, when you think about this big decision and people have talked about it like that, you did the, you made the big choice or whatever. If you imagine like a, a rock in the bottom of your shoe and it's grating against your foot constantly and it's tearing a hole in your foot mm. and you're having to walk along and there's people walking with you and you have to smile and kind of pretend like nothing's wrong and um, everyone's fine. It's always there. It's always there and it's tearing into you and you're in this constant pain and it gets exhausting trying to keep up this appearance like you're fine when you're not. And so it's this invisible pain that people around you can't perceive. And while they're on this walk with you, they're not going through what you're going through and they don't realize how hard it is for you. And then finally someone says like, let's go uphill. And it's just too much. And finally you're like, you know what? Screw this. Hang on, everyone. I have got to take this rock out of my shoe. So you do, you stop and you pull the rock out. For me, that's what it was. It was, you know, it's like when you're trying to make something fit that doesn't fit, or you're trying to get that, to take that rock out of your shoe, mm -hmm. it's hard in some ways, but making that step was just not, it wasn't possible to ignore it any longer. This incongruency, it's not like, you know, you're, you're a man and you want to be a girl or you're a man and you fetishize women. Like there's all these stereotypes about what people think trans women, what trans women are. It's that you have this understanding of yourself deep down inside you and it's constant. It's not something you can ignore. It's not something you can, you can kind of take out once in a while. It's always there and it's grating on you constantly. And if you don't do something about it, it's only going to get worse. And so you get to a point where you just can't take it any longer. And a lot of trans women go through these like hyper-masculine states when they're just, they're trying to battle, they're trying to push against it as hard as they can. They'll go from like, you know, kind of like average guy to like Rambo, you know, they'll join the Marines or they'll become a, a SEAL or, you know, they'll, they'll try to ramp it up and, and, you know, bulk up and become more macho. And that doesn't help, you know, it doesn't really get to that point. I had my own little version of that where I kind of tried to hyper-masculinize and then it's your last ditch effort. You realize it's just not going to work. So you have to, mm -hmm. you have to finally do something about this. And so coming out was hard. I had, you know, I'd married my husband. He was an Air Force um, member 
And then he retired. He got injured in Iraq. And so we retired and we had, you know, his pension. We had free flights. We were able to go to any base in the world. So um, he got out and worked as a civilian on the base. I did the same thing. And I had started my transition. Um, so culturally, I started my transition in 2003. But I started the HRT a little bit later, still on a military base with a military doctor. And when he did, he said, you know, this is something that never happens. And when I do this for you, two things are going to happen. One, once I start your care, they're not going to be able to interrupt your care. It's going to have to continue. And two, they're going to come for us. So be prepared for this. You know, and it was amazing that yeah. this guy, yeah, like he is a military doctor on a military what base. Was, like what, what year was that? So that would have been 2000. Eight, I think. Don't okay. don't quote me on it. I'll have to look up the date later. But yeah, around that time period, like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Germany. As well? That was in Germany. Yeah, that was actually Launchdale, Launchdale Regional Medical Center, and um, they did like they they were not pleased by this. They weren't pleased by the precedent it could set. And my work, you know, I had been the employee of the month, the golden child, everyone's favorite. I was a lead supervisor, and there was no problem until the day after I transitioned one of the supervisors came to me and said, hey, I think you should know what's going on. Um, please don't share this with anybody. But he gave me a copy of an email and it was from our leadership. And it's, it was mentioning me and it said, I don't know what this thing calls itself, but it doesn't belong here. We need to get it off our base. And so that was them talking about me. Mm -hmm. So that was my introduction to like this, this other moment, this, this next you know, moment of now I'm visible, so they're going to come after me. The same thing happened. You know, when I was 16 years old, you know, as I described to you earlier, I was a great student. I was part of the group. I was, you know, I had my issues for being a foster kid, and it was never an easy ride. But the day I, they, they, they realized I wasn't like them, suddenly they came for me. Same thing when I transitioned. The next day, I mean, I didn't change my demeanor. I didn't change my morals. I didn't change how I treated people. But suddenly I was the enemy, and so they started trying to force me out. They would you know, like schedule me for the wrong hours and, you know, give me one, one copy of the, of the schedule and then post another one and say, I had missed my schedule. Um, they would give me shitty hours. They started cutting my hours a lot. Um, I would get like my regulars who used to tip me quite a bit cause I was working as with AFIs at the time. They'd come in and not tip me or I'd have people come in and intentionally abuse me. And when I would ask my supervisor to like, you know, mitigate the situation, he'd be like, no, you have to just deal with it. So it was just constant bullying and, Push, trying to push me out. And I went to military equal opportunity and filed complaints. And those complaints got people to stop for a while. And then it would, it would start back up again. And so by like the third MEO complaint, I just gave up. I couldn't, I couldn't do it any longer. I, I had gone from being excited to go to work and feeling like I finally had a place because up until that point, I didn't have stability. And I finally was part of a community. I had a great job. You know, I was, and then to lose that stability, it was like another kick in the gut. You know, it was like trusting after all the abuse and all the letdown from society, from the system, to be yet again kicked in the gut, it was like, what's the point, you know? Wow. And so, so, what? So, what happened there? Did I mean? Did they? Did they? I mean, did they let you go? Did they? I eventually quit. So I, I just couldn't deal with it any longer. Quit. Yeah, I eventually quit, and um, it took a very long time to get back from that. So my husband went, you know, he went back to work and became the primary worker because being trans and trying to get a job. And we moved from Germany back to the States for a while. And um, he worked, but I went to a state of depression for quite a while and I tried to hide who I was. And when I transitioned, you know, I was lucky to blend in. I had always had extremely feminine features. I mean, I got called a girl 
all my teenage years, like people would mistake me for a girl constantly. I remember passing out in Walmart in, in Sholo, Arizona during the winter season. I had bundled up like three layers of sweaters and coats and I had passed out from heat stroke. I remember waking up and hearing people say, oh, that little girl passed out. Oh my God, that little girl passed out. I was like 12. And I remember feeling terrified because I didn't know why I was on the ground, but also feeling extremely great, like calm because they had seen me as a girl. It felt very mm -hmm. like verifying. So it was a weird, like kind of hot, cold situation. But my transition was very effective. Like I blended in. My voice was much more feminine in those days. And I hid. I hid for a long time. But then it became another situation of I'm passing as female, but I'm not a cisgender female. I don't want to transition to be a cis female. I'm not trying to take the place of cis females. I am a very unique person with my own perspective in life, my own journey. And by blending in, by going stealth, I was still invisible. I was still not being me and not able to be me. So it became another kind of incongruency. And eventually I just decided I can't do this. You know, So I came out as trans and mm -hmm. I did it in a way to where I couldn't take it back. I started posting my story online, got my name out there. And it's like, okay, now if I ever try to go stealth again, it's just not possible, you know? And, um, right. that and you're almost forced to live, to live your, your true self, your true identity. Exactly. Yeah. Like basically I, I, I knew that I might cower in the shadows again. So I outed myself in the biggest way I could. So I couldn't go back under the rock. And that forced me to be an advocate because once you're visible, once you become a target, then it's like, what do I have to lose by speaking up for other people? You know? Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, so so you eventually kind of got okay. So from there, you you got involved in aerospace, <clears throat> and I'm trying to take the, take this. I'm trying to trying to do this, and if you notice, I'm trying to take it as a timeline, right? Yeah. Um. So from there, you you got into aerospace, and you're you're kind of like a big deal in the aerospace community, especially with you know, gays in space and things like that. And so and and you're. You know, you're you're a trans activist. I mean, you you are working on this. Um, you know, getting a, a trans flag, you know, to globe trot all over the place, and then eventually getting it launched up and and, and put on the moon, right? So everybody can see. Um, how did that? How did you kind of get into that? And what what is the what is what are, what are the, what are the main messages that you're trying to get out? Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, growing up in that small town, like I said, I didn't really understand the outside world. But there was this moment where at that same thrift store <laughs> where I bought the skirt, mm -hmm. um, I used to go there. I, I collected stuffed animals. So I used to go there and buy them with a little bit of pocket money. And I was there shopping one day. And there was this old box back in the corner. And it had this huge stack of magazines. And I was, you know, reading was kind of my thing. It was how I got away from all, all the stuff going on. And it was a, a box of National Geographics. And I'd never seen them before didn't know they existed. And it was every National Geographic from 1960 to 1993. And I think it was like 50 cents or something. It was some crazy cheap price. You know, it was like, take the whole box and give us some pocket change. So I bought this from the nuns and went home and, oh my God, it was mind blowing. I mean, full color and the whole world, it was like all these different cultures and religions and science moments and spacewalks. And I, I realized like, this is not all there is. That's so, it's so interesting. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt for a second because I had the exact same kind of like experience because my grandmother had a, uh, a, uh, an entire set of, uh, Britannicas. Oh, nice. And yeah. I used to spend hours just kind of like flipping through and just reading it and, and just kind of like seeing all the photos and stuff. So 
very similar experience. That's that's really interesting. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, we're absolutely. I think there there are these moments in kids' lives that impact us and and set us on our courses in life. And it can be like you know, I remember I had mono. I have I I'm a carrier for mono. So when I was uh, I don't know how old I was, twelve or thirteen or something. I got mono really bad and I was out of school for months. And I remember the Oxford classics, my, one of my foster parents had this huge set of like Oxford classics and reading through them, it got me through that period. But yeah, it's, it's these moments can, can really change your life. And the National Geographics that I read, it was like, it, it let me know that this wasn't all there was. And it gave me hope. And even though I, I did still fall into despair after this, it still gave me a, an idea that there was more out there and I wanted to be a scientist. I, for whatever reason, that is what mm-hmm. I kind of got, you know, attached myself to. I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to probe things and figure out how and why they worked the way they did. And um, so I always had this kind of instinct inside me. And I would, I loved saying things like, according to my calculations, <laughs> even, right. when, even when I was a little kid. So that was kind of the first entry point for me. And then at some point I read The High Frontier by Jerry O'Neill. And it, it was like, he was speaking to me this idea that we could create equity in the world by building in space, that we could take all the things that were broken here and make them new there, that we could take heavy industry off, off planet earth. It was, it was like someone got it, you know? And so that was where my real obsession with space came in. And I think even with, you know, choosing to be on that flight line, it felt like I was a little bit closer to, to this to space, you know? So throughout all this stuff that we're talking about, like we're talking in a linear way, there were still these moments where I started building little groups and little clubs based on space. And so that's how I started with, with that. And then I had thought, you know, as an adult, I, I don't have any options. You know, the things that we tell people, the things that we look at, like as a foster kid or as a child of druggy parents, like you just don't have options. To some extent, that could be true in the way we can predict futures, but it wasn't true. There was a possibility. There's always a possibility of breaking those cycles. And so while I was thinking, I'll never be anything. I don't have this or I don't have that eventually something just snapped in me and I went, no, there has to be a way to do this. And I was always really good at communication. And I I was really good at speaking to people. And so I started building clubs and networks and eventually I was online and I started building out uh, following on Facebook. And a friend of mine was running something called the Jovian Society at the time. And he didn't get a lot of purchase. So he saw that I was getting some pretty good headway in some of my groups. And he's like, well, how are you doing this? Come help me. So I joined on and we took it from a smaller operation to a huge one. At any given point back in the day, if there was a huge science group on Facebook, we ran it. And um, it felt amazing to be able to build these communities. And we had things like aerospace engineering, Jupiter, Venus, you know, they were thematic groups and um, wonderful conversations. And it kind of gave me the feeling that I could achieve something in that zone. So I eventually I did go to school. went to UMUC and I did physics and astronomy and I haven't graduated even to this day, but it was amazing to see the possibilities open up. And I started devouring anything I could read on space and on aerospace, joining any group I could be in and talking to many, as many people as possible. And eventually once we had a pretty big following, I would go to these science groups and I would say, Hey, I see you're doing these really cool things and um, you're not getting a lot of feedback on it. I would love to help you blow this thing up. And um, so I would take it. I would take like the conference they were doing coming up or the event and I would post it in my groups and it would get a lot of response. And so they would be mesmerized. They would say, how are you doing this? What do you want? And um, I would say to them, I want two things. One, if you get to space before me, you take me with you and we have a coffee on the moon. And that was kind of cheeky. The other one was, if I call you for a meeting with somebody, you take the meeting. You don't have to give them what they want, but you have to take the meeting. And so I traded this kind of asset I had built up 
for access. I didn't want money. And that was unique because everybody wants money to do anything for anybody. So they were, you know, to them, that was a really cool thing. If you know space organizations, they're all broke all the time. So if they can get something for free, it can really help. So it became this mutual symbiotic trade of, I'll give you exposure, you give me access. And I just kept building and building and building. And I, I made it my life's work to dig into as many different space organizations and companies as I could, figure out who ran them, figure out what they did, figure out what they were missing, and try to fill in the blanks for them as much as I could, mm-hmm. and um, never took any money for it. To this day, I really don't get paid. Most of the work I do is nonprofit, and I don't get a salary for any of it. I don't get a salary with Gaze in Space. I don't get a salary with Multiplanetary Society. I try to donate my services where they're needed in organizations that are doing amazing things I believe in. That's great. That's fantastic. But I mean, you, I mean, it's, it's, it's helped you become incredibly one. It's given you a a platform for equality. Absolutely. Which is, you know, it's, that's so, you know, invaluable. Um, and two, it's also really kind of like opened up some, some, you know, the doors and I mean, you're incredibly connected, you know, so that's definitely, you know, that's, that's invaluable. Oh, absolutely. I've been very fortunate in that I've built, I built a very large network. I've built a lot of friendships and connections and, and, you know, I work with a lot of amazing people. I I feel fortunate every single day that I'm able to be here and it can be hard sometimes. I sit across from people with Harvard degrees, you know, PhDs, loads and loads of PhDs. Right. And it's amazing because for the most part, if you're bringing value, they just don't care. You know, they don't care if you don't have a degree. It's like, you've done all these great things. You're helping me out. We're equals here it can feel amazing because where I used to feel like there was no possibility and I couldn't be in a, a, a place of any kind of effect because I didn't have the right whatever. Now I've realized that it's, a, it's what you do in the world. It's how you impact people. It's what you bring to the table that really matters. And there are so many different routes. And because I'm so sensitive to this idea of how I got here, I didn't go the usual route. I didn't have the money or the degree or anything. Whenever I do something, I try to make sure part of my message at least if not a lot of it, is telling people that there are so many ways to get involved with this. I try to help people see that you don't need a degree. There are so many different pathways. And to watch someone go from, oh, that's cool, but I can't be part of that because, to suddenly, oh my God, that's cool, and I can be part of it. That's what it's all about. That's great. That's great. Um, you're the, the project, right? The, uh, the trans flag that's going to be traveling the world really. Um, and eventually getting be, you know, shot up and in, into space and, and put on the moon. Um, can you talk a little bit about that project and, and, and what it means for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my whole time in the trans space, you know, when I got out of the military and when I, when we left the military base, even as a civilian, I, um, joined this organization called this is how. And it was the only trans shelter at the time. And I got a crash course in trans rights and trans history. And um, I became an advocate. So that was kind of my start there. There's been this changing dialogue about what it means to be trans and what it means to be an advocate and what it means to interact with trans people and where we fit into things. And I've watched the dialogue go from us having to be really quiet and kind of earn a spot at the the table, but not really quite as equal to... um, us being able to dominate the conversation in certain spaces and there's good and bad on all these different sides. But I feel like for the most part, it's become extremely polarized to where it used to be a matter of trying to get everyone to the middle ground of trying to find some common ground where we may not always agree, but we can respect each other's humanity. Now I feel like it's polarized, especially in America 
where we have these far right and far left conversations. And I feel like the philosophy is dominating the conversation and not the sense of humans involved. So I want to have nuanced conversations. I want to talk to people who are terrified of me. I want to speak to people who hate me. And um, I want to find out why and, and what I can do to recognize their humanity and maybe help them come to a better understanding of the situation from my perspective and get a grip on their perspective because it's easy to, to hate and to kind of play down the other side. It's easy to think that we all have the moral high ground and both sides really think they do. But what I try and do is put myself in their head, you know, and I'm thinking about, for instance, the, the fight on trans women in the bathroom. People are terrified. It's a primal sense of fear. It's a vulnerable place when we're even dogs have this sense of like when you're relieving yourself in the wild, you're at your most vulnerable. You can't fight back as readily. And so it's a primal kind of instinct in us to feel like that space needs to be well guarded. We put up doors and stalls and locks and we take people with us. And, you know, I get that and I understand the, the value in that. And so when people fear me, when they think of a trans woman going into a woman's bathroom and they think this is a man who's invading a woman's space and it can potentially damage them. I have to respect their sense of protection and their sense of trying to keep people safe. At the same time, I also have to um, be concerned for my safety in that situation where they automatically think all trans women are predators. So I try and talk about the fact that when I was growing up, I see myself as a woman and I'm being forced into men's spaces. I'm being forced into the boys' bathroom to change in front of the other boys and it's awful. I hate it and it's, it's so uncomfortable and I, I would lock myself in the stall so I wouldn't have to see them and they couldn't see me and change. And I wanted to quit school over those moments. And so, and then of course I got teased for changing in the stall. That's one of those things for whatever reason. So I, I totally get this like primal sense of territory or, or fear, but I want them to know that I also experience it. It's also extremely uncomfortable for me. And there are no easy mm -hmm. answers, you know, in Europe, I live here in Europe and it's a very different conversation. It's not a big deal here. We have public baths, people strip naked. You know, all genders, they strip naked and they get in the public baths and we have like the lowest rape rates in the world. So it's a very different kind of culture where we've, we've evolved out of like the Turkish baths and the Roman baths. And so there's never been this sense right. of like sexuality isn't instantly tied to a naked body in Europe. Mm -hmm. So we don't have the same sort of like um, fear in the bathroom that you do in America. So I try to be sensitive to the fact that America evolved in a very different way. And so for them, a naked body is sexual instantly. And that space is instantly a target zone. So I try to, I want to have the, the hard conversations. I want to dig into these things and try to find the roots of them. And, and there has to be a way to figure out how we meet in the middle, how we find the common ground, because we're not going away. Trans people are not going away. We've been around since the beginning. If you can go back to the Inari and ancient Scythia, and even further, thousands and thousands of years ago, there were trans women and there will always be trans women. Right. But also, very conservative people are not going away. So we have to find some way to coexist. And so that's what this project is about. I want to have nuanced conversations. I want to give room for us to find some way of working together. And um, the trans flag is 12 foot by 8 foot. So it's a symbol. Symbols are very important. It's a huge visible thing. And we're going to be raising this flag. We've already raised it over several areas. We want to raise that trans flag and we want to have conversations, hard conversations. Because I think if we don't start having more conversations, we're going to have a lot more physical danger. Like if we can't talk, we fight. When dialogue stops, right. war begins. So I think we need to have some way to build, build these conversational grounds 
And um, we're going to be flying it over DHS. We're going to hopefully over the White House. That's really a goal of ours. We have a couple offers of taking it to space. And it's just a symbol of the possibilities we could reach if we, we sat down and talked to each other. Right. That's great. That's fantastic. And that, that, that whole project launched here in Austin, right? It did. So we had a little bit of a soft launch. We, we took it around to some of the conventions and we had actors sign it and we had astronauts sign it and make mm-hmm. videos supporting trans rights. But we launched it on the Bat Bridge in Texas. And that mm-hmm. was kind of like the big symbolic moment of it beginning. You know, I think it's really important. We see the conversation in Texas and Florida is like pretty much the most heated in America. These are battlegrounds in this, this cultural sure. war between these two sides. What are your thoughts? And I know that, you know, we're coming up onto an hour here, so uh, I, I definitely want to be respectful, respectful of your time. But there's a, you know, there's a, a really big kind of a current story that's coming out. Um, and that's with, you know, Trump <clears throat> just, um, he just, he just released a video of, of him talking about creating legislation to only recognize two genders. Are did you see that already? I, I did see that. You know, I actually was impacted by Trump, and um, when I when he before he came into office, Obama at the very end of his term, he said, you know, Tricare is going to start covering uh, trans surgeries. Tricare is the military insurance, and I had been waiting to get my surgery covered. So finally, I was going to get my surgery covered, and I started some of the preoperative stuff and talking to the doctors, and I was on the road to getting it. And because of that, I got my orchiectomy, which is like the first surgery you do, and. Um, Trump came into office and the first thing he did was block military insurance coverage of, of trans surgery. So I was directly impacted by him. And I look at this phenomenon of Trump. It's very strange to me because a lot of people that claim to support him or seem to deify him, they're coming from a place of like very religious Christian upbringing in a mm-hmm. sense, like not all of them, but a lot of them. And when I think about Christians, I think about, you know, the epitome of a Christian is are these values that come from the Bible, from Judeo-Christian theology, and he just doesn't fit it. <laughs> you know, he's not, he's not the kind of person I would see, like the people I grew up with supporting, they would see him as, you know, the man of sin, like, you know, sleeping around and mm-hmm. doing all these terrible things, like that he would not be their idea of a Christian. So it's, it was weird to me when they latched onto him and he became like this, this uh, greed, God of the right. Greed. Greed, adultery, uh, yeah. you know, you know, all that stuff. And definitely not religiosity. So it was, it was strange to me. I think it's, Trump is not the cause of a lot of what's going on. He's really just, he was a valve that turned suddenly and a lot of it got to spill out. It's been going on for a long time. America has never been this unified place. You know, we can talk about, you know, you say, you say growing up Hispanic. I remember growing up and First of all, I'm Mexican and Irish from my birth families. And then I'm growing up in all these different foster homes. And so I have pieces of me that are that come from all these different influences. And there's no stability. There's no sense of where I belong. Who am I? Am I only my birth parents? Or am I also pieces of all these other homes I grew up in? Is it my is it your genetics? Is it your nurturing? Is it so I already have this, but there's no, when you look at like American history, I would sit in these classes and they would say, we came over on the Mayflower. We left because of what happened with the king. And it's like, that doesn't, isn't my story. And for so many kids in America, like that's not our story. That's not how we got here. My mother's family left during the Mexican revolution and my father's family left during the um, plagues in Ireland, the, the famine during Ireland. So it's like, none of this pertained to me. 
And I think it's really indicative of the problem in America and some of the beauty is that there is no unified sense of who we are. And so because of that, a lot of, beauti- a lot of beautiful things happen where we have all these different influences, but then there's also a lot of friction. And all these different pieces of who we could be as a people are always rubbing up against each other, ready to turn into a problem or something beautiful. And with Trump, I think a lot of the hate and a lot of the friction came forward because it was able to. And I don't see it as, I don't even know what he honestly believes. I think he knows a tactic and what works. And he saw yeah. that he could unify people around hate and fear. So when he comes up, comes for the trans people, I don't think that Trump has a special place in his heart against us. I think he knows that enough people do that he might get elected. And it's terrible. What he's doing is absolutely terrible. But mm-hmm. we can't just look at Trump and say Trump bad. We have to look at the root causes. And it isn't even bad, trans, bad anti-trans people. It's People are afraid. They're not informed. There isn't enough connection between all of us. We're not bridging those gaps. So as a country, we're going to have to figure out how to bridge those differences. They're not going to go away. And if we just want to pin it on one politician or one moment in politics and history, mm-hmm. we're never going to get a solution. So I don't want to focus too much on Trump. I think it's terrifying what he's doing. I think it's terrifying what Rick DeSantis is doing. But that's not where we're, we're not going to solve it by targeting a politician with philosophy. Right. We're going to have to find solutions on the ground, bridge those solutions. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, that was fantastic. That was, that was incredibly put. Um, I mean, do you, do you think, I mean, do you, do you really think like a piece of legislation like that could be passed? Well, <clears throat> We can talk about what to only recognize to only recognize two genders in the U.S. We can look at like legal and political processes, and there's always a possibility that we can start new paradigms or end old paradigms with a change in laws or policies. But the reality is that reality lives in the streets. You know, a very good example of this is like you know you can make cocaine illegal all you want to; it has never changed the cocaine situation in the streets. Um, right. Good, good and bad. Like real life is lived in the streets, and so. I don't know what's going to happen with the policies, but I do know that trans people are still going to be here and they're still going to exist and we're still going to find a way. I mean, there were right. trans there were trans people under the Nazis that lived and died but and got away or succeeded or failed. There were trans people in every civilization, as far as I know. So it may make things really hard for us, but we're going to push back. Like, there's going to be pushback. And I, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I really hope it doesn't come to that, honestly. Yeah. The further well, I think I think the further the policy gets from the reality, the harder it is to enforce and the less likely it is to right. do anything good. Right. That's a great point. Um you know, we are we are just just over an hour and I know that you're you're calling in from Germany. So I definitely I know it's getting late there. Um, and I want to respect your time and, uh, and, you know, uh, my, my thanks to your family for, for allowing me to, to steal you away for an hour in the evening. And, um, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to kind of get like a final thought from you. I mean, if you, if you could have, um, you know, a conversation with the younger Anara growing up. Um, you know, the seven-year-old, the six, the 16-year-old, the, the 19-year-old that's in the air force, you know, what, what message would you give that to that, to that young, that young man that is, that is trying to, 
find his place in this world and uh, and and maybe considering you know transitioning and finding their you know trying to find their true their true identity you know i i do this thing where i go back in my mind and i sit with my younger self it's it's a technique i don't know where i picked it up but i'll go back to these moments where i had these horrible traumatic experiences and i just imagine myself in those experiences and and I did this, I think, because I would relive them over and over and over again. So I was forced to kind of be in this, these old situations, whether it was like being molested, being beaten. I had a pastor that would make me put on a dog collar and leash and make me eat on my, you know, hands and knees out of a dog dish, like just crap like that. There's all, I can, all kinds of stuff, but I would be forced to relive these things. You, you go back through them and you try to figure out why and what could have been done differently or why it happened to you or what it means, or, you know, did they did they create me? Are all the good pieces of me a result of all the bad things that happened? So, and that's almost like re-traumatizing yourself because you feel like no matter what they did to you, anything good that happened, you kind of have to thank them for it. And that's a terrible feeling. So I'd go back and I would be reliving these things. And I realized that I could step beside myself in these, these like kind of relivings. And I could be my adult self standing there with my child self. And I could see that she was going through these horrible experiences. And I would just say, I'm here. We made it. Like all these things are terrible and you're going through them, but you're not alone. And, and someday we're going to get to a place that is better and you're going to find a place where you belong and people that love you. And so, you know, there isn't really one simple message. It's, it's a matter of perseverance. We all go through hardships and oftentimes we feel utterly alone and there, like there's no possibility. I think what I've learned because of all the things I've been through is that in those moments when you don't think there are possibilities, start looking beyond where you can see, like start looking for the ability to right. find new possibilities because there always are those possibilities. Perseverance has been probably my constant companion in any success I've had. Things don't necessarily come the first time. They don't come easily. You have to struggle for them, but perseverance gets you there. It's rocket fuel. You know, when you're trying to send a rocket into orbit, you're pushing against gravity. You're working against these forces of nature that are not meant to be broken in a certain sense. And so that thrust is mighty. And so your perseverance is the same way. Make yourself mighty in the sense that you persevere and you can do anything, honestly. That's been fantastic. That's great. I, I, I couldn't have ended it better myself. Like, you were fantastic. It's been so great to hang out with you. Um, thank you for, for joining us uh, today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll see you. And thank you so much for listening to the Learning Man podcast. My name is Omar Cantu. I could not thank you enough for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed what you heard and would like some more of that content, we're going to be dropping new episodes every Friday. So make sure and hit that follow button wherever you listen to your podcast and write us a review because it really does help the channel. Share what topic you want to tackle next or maybe the name of a guest that you want to hear from. Thank you again for joining me in this journey. It means so much to me.